The readings from Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 28, and in this uh, blue church Bible, it's on page 1207. So, Hebrews 9, starting at verse 11, the blood of Christ. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who, who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the Lord to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thanks, Frida. A few years ago, I found a couple of wonderful books in a, in a friend's loo. I don't know if you have a, a loo library. It's quite an important thing. If you're going to spend a bit of time in there. Don'ts for wives and don'ts for husbands. I don't know if you've seen these. They were published in 1913. They're full of useful advice. And uh, one particular piece of advice in don'ts for husbands was this gem. 
Don't be conceited about your good looks. It's more than probable that no one but yourself is aware of them. <laughs> now, people are generally better viewed at a distance, aren't they? Uh, the closer you get to someone, the more our imperfections stand out. And uh, that's why a close encounter with a mirror can be quite a disturbing experience. You know, every pore suddenly becomes visible, every scar, every zit, every blemish, every oddity about your face. You suddenly notice that your ears are different shapes and your eyes are different designs and your mouth's lopsided when you come to a mirror. And what's true of our physical appearance is also true of our character. It's not too difficult to appear relatively nice when viewed irregularly at a distance. But when you get sort of up close and personal with someone, when you live with them or perhaps even you marry them, you quickly find they've got fault lines bigger than that one that opened up in the East African Rift Valley this week, and they've got warts larger than a pantomime witch. You know, it's the nature of this thing called sin. We're not the people we want to be, let alone the people God calls us to be. But you see, the opposite is the case with God. The closer you get to him, the more beautiful he becomes because he is without sin. He is perfect. So coming out close to God is more like drawing close to an extraordinary work of art. As you, as you draw close, you begin to see how every brushstroke, every uh, action of the chisel produced this extraordinary thing. You begin to notice the detail, the intricate care that's been taken, the skill that has been invested in it. So, so as we come to study the character of God, as we draw near to him, well, the better we get to know him, the more glorious he is. The more we don't just see his love, but we experience his love. The more that we know what it is to call the author of life our Father. The more we wonder at the beauty of what he has done. And that's important when we come to Hebrews, because our writer keeps urging us to draw near to God. He did it last week in chapter 7 and verse 19. He's going to do it next week in chapter 10 at the end of verse 1. It says, we who draw near to worship. And finally, at the end of the section we're in, if you look down at chapter 10 and verse 19, chapter 10 and verse 19, this is where the writer wants us to end up once we've understood these things about Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's what the writer wants us to do, to be able to draw near to God, to what we're made for, to know him, to worship him. See, the Bible starts with a world where people are enjoying being near to God in a garden called Eden. And the Bible ends with a perfect new world where people enjoy dwelling with God very at the heart of them, His presence with them, up close and personal. And that's what God is achieving through this person called Jesus. And we saw last week that Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to draw near to God. So, so our writer starts in chapter 8. We're looking at chapters 8 and 9. We're not going to read all of it, but here, chapter 8, verse 1, he tells us very handily, now the main point of what we're saying is this, 
we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Now, if this is uh, your first time in the book of Hebrews, we've been seeing the writer use the Old Testament priesthood and system of worship from the first half of the Bible to illustrate what Jesus does. And so here he talks about Jesus as being a high priest, one who facilitates your relationship with God. He's sitting down not because he's fed up or he's knackered. He's sitting down because his work is finished. He has done everything necessary for us to draw near to God. But what, what is this? How does this help us? How does this tabernacle, this tent from the Old Testament, how, how does all this priest stuff, these sacrifices, I mean, what do they have to do with living in London in the 21st century? How do they encourage us about knowing God today? It seems, doesn't it, like we're talking about something that is literally a thousand miles away and a couple of thousand years away. Well, look what a writer says in chapter 8 and verse 5. Talking about the Old Testament priests, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. In other words, all that stuff in the Old Testament was put there by God as a, a shadow, an outline, if you like, so that we could understand better the glorious technicolor picture that is the Lord Jesus. My, my kids at the moment, I think they picked it up at school, are loving that game where you try and jump on someone's shadow. Did you play that when you were a kid? You know, they run away and you sort of try and jump on their shadow to get them. But because our shadow is, is joined to us, isn't it? It gives a, a picture of what we're like, an, an outline. But it doesn't actually show the, the full thing. You have to sort of follow the shadow, reach the feet and look up, and there you see the full real picture. And, and the Old Testament, it's a shadow that points us to the full picture of Jesus, what he has come to do for us. And so the writer can say in verse 6, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Jesus has a better, a superior ministry than the Old Testament. He's come to bring a better covenant, and they're based on better promises. So we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to look at those promises, fantastic promises. Then we're going to see that we have a fatal problem. And finally, we're going to look at the final priest, the Lord Jesus. So, so what about that fantastic promise talked about in chapter 8? Because it is promises that are at the heart of that word covenant. Uh, a covenant is really a deal between two parties. And in the case of the Old Testament, it was between God and his people, the Israelites. We've been studying it in the book of Exodus in our evening sermons. God rescues his people from Egypt. He takes them to Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant, a set of promises with them. But the problem is, as their history goes on, they are totally incapable of keeping their side of the deal. They don't even get close to it. Look what our writer says in chapter 8 and verse 8. But God found fault with the people. So what does God do? Does he give up on them? No, actually, God gives them a new promise. Chapter 8 again and verse 8. And said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors 
when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah from chapter 31. And God is saying, look, my people, they have always failed me, and therefore it is my plan to make a new covenant. And you see what the nature of that new promise is? Have a look down at verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Did you see who's at work here? I will establish. I will. I will. I will. It's the Lord's initiative. It's his work. And you see what he promises. I'm going to take that law. It used to be written on tablets of stone, but I'm going to write it on their hearts so they now will want to obey me. I'm going to pledge to be their God. I will be with them in permanent relationship. It'll be a relationship where they'll know me intimately. They won't need priests to teach them. Everyone will know me personally, accurately. And it will all be made possible by verse 12. Verse 12 is the climax of this promise. Look down at it. It starts with four. Here's the reason God can do this. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. All their failure to keep their side of the deal. All their active selfishness, all the ways they ignore my good law. I will not just forgive them. It'll be though I have forgotten them. They will be gone forever. See, that's the better deal Jesus comes to bring. God's promise to change our hearts so that we become a person who loves him and loves others. It wasn't plan B for God. No, this was always his plan. He he was always the God who was going to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this promise, God says, I will stick with you through all of life. Whatever happens, whatever you do, I will know you. you. You won't know me as a distant deity, but you'll know me personally and intimately, whoever you are. God's promise is that in every way you stuff up the relationship with me, I will deal with it forever. Now, I'm pretty sure the best human promises that I ever had came from uh, my wife, made when we got married. You know, those vows. This is what I said to her. I, David, because that's my proper name, take you, Catherine, which is her proper name. Don't call her it because she won't know who you're talking about. I, David, take you, Catherine, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, and to protect, till death us do part, according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. Now, how do you think if, uh, or how would I have felt if the vicar, who happened to be my dad, if the vicar had turned to Boo and uh, she'd said nothing? Just silence. No promises at all. Not a word. But but that's the way God's covenant works. I, God, 
will take you to be my people, to hold you close to my heart from this day forward, for better, for worse, whether you're rich or poor in love towards me, whether you're spiritually healthy or whether you're sick with sin, I'll forgive you, I'll love you, I'll cherish you, I'll protect you till I take you home to live in my presence forever. I will, says God, because you won't. That's the deal from God. I will do it because you won't. There there is simply no promise like it. It's not just that um, as people, we, we just can't love like this to make promises like this and keep them. It's we're incapable of it. I, this, is, this is firstly, it's, it's a covenant without duties. There's nothing demanded of us in chapter 8. It is purely a covenant of grace. God freely giving us out of his love. That there's nothing for us to do to earn this blessing. He even changes our hearts so that we want to obey him. There's no conditions for us to meet. I think it's um, sometimes easy, isn't it, to think that God's put like a secret clause in the deal somewhere of that relationship. I've I've chatted to a few people recently who've who've wondered whether the difficulties they're struggling with in life are because they've sort of let God down in some way. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You know, something goes belly up in life and you think, oh, maybe, maybe it's because I behaved like this. I failed to do what God wants. But, But that's not the way God works. He's the God of I will because you won't. He's the great giver. It also means there's there's no way we can twist God's arm. We can't offer him a deal. Now, look, Lord, I'm serving you here. Uh, How come life isn't going the way I want it? Or, look, Lord, I won't bother you if if you just don't bother me. No, it's God who takes the initiative. It's he who maintains our relationship with him. Because, secondly, this is a covenant of forgiveness. It's a promise of to permanently and always forgive the ways that make a mess of our side of the relationship. Forgive our our careless attitude towards the God who loves us. Forgive our deliberate disobedience towards Adonai, the God who is our boss, the one who rules us. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, can you see why we call Christianity gospel? Good news? This is an utterly unique promise from God. Now, you may be thinking, well, well, why why bother with all those Old Testament sacrifices then? I mean, why not just kick off with Jesus? Why have the priests and the tabernacle if it's such a fantastic promise? Well, it's because God knows that his people, we, his people, need to learn that we have a fatal problem, a fatal problem. That's the second thing we see. See, that was the lesson of the tent that the Lord instructed his people to build, the tabernacle. Have a look at chapter 9 and verse 2 with me. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. Now, I've got a, a diagram here to help you. When the uh, Hebrews heard this sermon, remember Hebrews is written to Christians from a Jewish background, the tabernacle had long gone. It had been replaced by the temple. They were actually on their third temple in Jerusalem. But it was in the same design and principle of the tabernacle. 
And the lesson was this. There were a set of barriers that stopped you coming into the presence of God. So if you were a a normal person, you were just allowed into the outer courtyard. That's the only place you could go. You, You certainly couldn't go into the holy place. You had to be a priest to go into the holy place, and that involved sacrifice. But even the priests didn't get to see the the articles that were at the heart of the worship. There was a gold altar of incense where they used to do prayers. There was the ark. That that was the box that God told Moses to put the terms of the old covenant, the tablets of stone in. On the ark was the cherubim of God's glory and the atonement seat where sin could be forgiven. That was a picture of the heart of the most holy place. But the most holy place, even the priests couldn't go into. Look who could go into the most holy place. It comes in verse 7. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. Do you see about coming, drawing near to God when it happened, what the emphasis is? Only one man, the high priest, only once a year, and only with the shedding of blood. That day was called the Day of Atonement. That was the big day in the Jewish calendar. It was a day of high drama in the life of God's people. All all the Israelites sort of gathered around the tabernacle. I, I, I don't know if you can imagine being in a crowd, say, of over a million. Apparently something like... A million to two million people came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Can you imagine being in a crowd of over a million? It's like the, the whole population of Greater Manchester and Liverpool all coming to watch the derby. That's a crowd of a million. You, you wouldn't have been able to see what was going on unless you were at the front. But you'd have felt what was going on. You'd have heard what was going on. But because you knew this was the day that your sin was dealt with. This was the day that the ceremony meant that you could be safe before God. And so you were there waiting, and the high priest, they would make the sacrifices needed for sin. When it says sins of ignorance in verse 7, that doesn't mean you didn't realize you were sinning or didn't claim you were sinning, you know, like the kid who says, well, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to take Isaac's sweets. That's not a sin of ignorance. A sin of ignorance was throughout the year you knew you'd sinned, but some of them, they'd passed you by. You'd, you'd not made any sacrifices throughout the year. You knew that there was all sorts of things in your life you had never dealt with. And this was the day that they could be dealt with. And the problem was, sin was deadly. That, that was the message of the blood. I mean, there's a lot of blood in Hebrews 9. Did you notice that while it was read? There's blood in verse 7, twice in verse 12. There's blood in verse 13, 14, 18, 19, 20, 21, twice in verse 22, and in verse 25. This is a chapter soaked in blood. And the message of the blood is, sin is deadly, and someone has to die to deal with it. Now, I've got a picture here. You might not want to see this if you're squeamish. You might want to look away. There's a lot of blood when a goat dies. Can you imagine how much blood there would be on this day when a a bull, a young bull was sacrificed and then a goat was sacrificed? We live very sanitized lives. The, The picture of the blood was the horror of sin. Blood poured out. 
And the lesson of all that blood of sacrifice, it comes in verse 8. Look at chapter 9 and verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. So the message of only one man, only once a year, with lots of bloodshed was no go. Human beings cannot come into my presence, says God. You, you, your sin, sin means that you are excluded. There is a death sentence hanging over you. That's the picture of the goat. This is what you deserve. The picture of the bull. This is what you deserve for the way you've treated me. I mean, if you're an Israelite, you didn't even think about having like a quick naughty sneak peek through the curtain into the most holy place because you knew that resulted in death. Pretty soon after Moses had been given these Old Testament priestly laws and his brother Aaron had been appointed high priest, two of Moses' lads, who were sort of lesser priests, thought, hey, we're going to do some freestyle worship here. Let's not worry about the book. We're just going to go for it. And as they approached the tabernacle, the Bible says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. They were literally burnt up by God's holy presence. You didn't approach God on your own terms. It was fatal. And in the end, you knew that. Do you see that verse 9? This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshipper. Conscience here literally means knowing your true self. And if you knew your true self, you knew that all that animal blood didn't really deal with the way you treated God and other people. It didn't change you. You were still guilty. See, if if you rely on yourself, if you rely on something another human being does for you, if you rely on the death of an animal, it's never going to really deal with your true feelings of inner guilt. Do you know there are millions of people trapped into this cycle today? Maybe you're still one of them. This is why religious ritual, even, even Christian ritual, the ritual of the priesthood of Roman Catholicism or Orthodox churches or even some Anglican churches, it's not, it's not just a bit of ceremony. It's not just doing things differently. It's not just for people who like dressing up a bit on the weekends. It's a trap. You see, what happens is this. You feel bad about yourself. So you go to the special place, the church, and you watch the special man, the priest, perform some special ceremony for you. Then you get to eat the special bread and wine, and you briefly convince yourself, I've done enough. I'm okay now. The problem is, it has no power to cleanse the inner you, the real you, the conscience. And so what you end up with is this life of guilt an obligation, guilt, an obligation. One of the churches where we used to work in Exeter had on the outside uh, talking about the Saturday night mass. It said, Saturday night mass, this fulfills your Sunday obligation. It's a life of self-pity, followed by brief moments of self-righteousness, and then back to self-pity again. If you look to yourself or to any human religious ritual to make yourself feel better, 
it doesn't, it doesn't leave you dealing with your conscience. And worst, actually, from the problem of feeling subjectively guilty about yourself, it doesn't leave you objectively innocent before God. You're still objectively guilty before him. So it's a lesson that we need permanently written upon our hearts, that sin is very serious. And there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing at all we can do about it. That by nature we are under a death sentence that we deserve. Because unless we feel the, the horror of the way we treat God and other people, we will never feel the depth of God's love for us. Unless we see the wickedness of our heart, we will never see the wonder of God's forgiveness. Unless we realize we've got no right to draw near to God, we will never treasure the cross of Christ. Because that's the last thing. That's the heart of Hebrews 9. It's actually the heart of history. It's the heart of the Christian faith. It's the final priest, the Lord Jesus. The final priest. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9 with me. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. Good things here in Jesus Christ. Because he didn't come to go into some earthly tent. No, he came so we could enter the home of God in heaven. He didn't come to offer some animal sacrifice, a picture of death. He came to pour out his own blood the blood of the Son of God. So verse 12 tells us he wins an eternal redemption, a single sacrifice that means there is no need for any other sacrifices forever, eternally. Because the blood of Jesus shed cleanses people for all time. See, he does in reality what the high priest could only do symbolically. When, when Hebrews talks about blood, it's not just talking about that which coursed through Jesus' veins. It's talking about the action of his death at the cross. And that death is where he took our death sentence. Uh, the news yesterday was full of, wasn't it, Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltran. He's the French policeman who swapped himself for one of those hostages in the supermarket. He, he was shot by the gunman. He gave himself for another person. He died their death. And rightly, he's being honored all over France, all over the world as a hero. But that is what Jesus did for us. But, but not just a spur-of-a-moment thing. No, this was the determined action of the innocent Son of God to give his perfect life that deserved nothing other than praise and worship and glory in the place of the life of guilty people who deserve nothing other than curse, death, and punishment. Guilty, we are. Innocent, he is. A glorious swap. With the result, verse 14, 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? We can be cleansed internally. Why? Because dealing with our sin is is not about me believing a lie about myself that in some way I can be a better person and, and clean up my own actions. It's not about me even pretending that what I've done isn't serious. Sort of, you know that conversation you have in your head where you try and explain it away you're feeling bad about it but you you try and explain it away you tried it on your wife it didn't work but you keep trying it on yourself hoping it will go away it's not about that dealing with the guilt of our conscience is about the actual historical reality of the son of god who gave his life for me So that I am now literally cleansed before God, literally innocent. It's about a real sacrifice that really deals with sin outside of myself. So how do I know that I'm innocent? Not by looking at me or looking at the action of any man, but by looking at Jesus and what he's done for me. And that's why I am free to serve, or the word could be free to worship. I'm free to give my life to this God who I can draw near to because I know how loved I am by him. I don't have any obligations to him other than to love him with all I have. And because of that, we have an eternal inheritance. Do you see? Eternal redemption in verse 12. Eternal inheritance is what we get in verse 15. That that relationship with God that, according to the old covenant, went round and round in a circle where we never were quite sure whether God was on our side and whether we had done enough for him. Now I know it will be forever that I'm in relationship with him and I can be certain that I will go to be with him in a glorious new creation because he sealed the deal with the blood of Jesus. Now that's the message of verses 16 through to 22. Uh, The word translated will there is really the word covenant. If you've got good enough spectacles, you can see that using the footnotes. Using the term will, I think, is not particularly helpful in our Bible. In verse 16, it makes us think of getting together with a solicitor. So we're told that Aunt Flo has given us, you know, her shell collection, where she's given our second cousin three times removed who once went to visit her the entire contents of her savings scheme. Okay, that's not what he means by will here. The picture is a ceremony when a deal is sealed between God and his people. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus 24, says our writer, you'll remember, when Moses sealed the deal between God and the people, there was blood. An animal was killed and blood was sprinkled on the people and blood was sprinkled on the book of the covenant, the deal. So it is now with Jesus. There is blood. Blood cleanses us, the people. Blood held before God. It seals the deal between us and God. Have a look at verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. and Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But blood has been shed. The blood of Jesus shed at the cross. And because... It wasn't in an earthly tabernacle, but 
he is now in heaven. And because it was his perfect life, not the life of a, a bull or a goat, and because he's done away with sin once and for all, he doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again. A single death to deal with sin. And so verse 26 says, Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he's appeared once for all for the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So where do I take my guilt? To the cross. Where do I take my feelings of insecurity? To the cross. Where do I take my future? To the certainty of the cross. To, to the Son of God shedding his blood for me so that I am fully and finally and freely cleansed forever into a relationship that cannot be broken because I am the God who says I will when you won't. And I will send my son to die for you when you won't follow me and obey me. And he will cleanse you from all of your disobedience. Did you see what all of us face in terms of destiny? Verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. That's what you and I face. Death, then judgment. And so what does God do? Verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. On the, on the Day of Atonement, there, there was quite a tense moment. It happened when the high priest took the, the bowl of blood that was from the goat into the most holy place. It was tense because... The question was, would God accept the sacrifice? Would the high priest live? I mean, the only way you'd know it was acceptable was if, if he came back out the tent. I guess there'd have been something like a, a silence that descended over the whole assembly, a million people hushed. You know, maybe the sound of a, a baby crying, being rocked, a, a toddler uh, being told to hush down, a, a teenager, just, just not now. They waited, and then the curtain drew back, and out he came. And I guess there might even have been a cheer. Hey, sin dealt with for this year. And then we'll be back next year, and the year after, and the year after, and the year after that. You see, Jesus has poured out his blood. And we saw in Hebrews 7, he's now permanently holding that blood before his Father in heaven. And the writer of the Hebrews pitches the heaven as the most holy place. He's in the presence of God, permanently mediating a perfect relationship between you and God now. And he's going to come out of the most holy place. But when he comes out, it's, it's not like the high priest to, to, to make another sacrifice. Now, Jesus, when he comes out, when he comes from heaven to earth again, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to say, come in. Come in. Come into the most holy place. Come in and be in the presence of your Father in heaven. Come in and draw near fully and finally so you See him as he really is. And, and you know him as he knows you. And you love him as he loves you. Come in. 
That's what Jesus' death achieves. That's why we call it Good Friday. There's never never been a better Friday for us. How does the hymn put it? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And what does the Lord say? Hebrews 8 verse 12. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. The Lord says, I have. I have washed you. Your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done it all. Draw near to me. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we now draw near to you in confidence. Not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the one perfect sacrifice made for us there. Because of the bloodshed. Please, our Father, help us to look to our Lord Jesus every moment of every day and know that we are your forgiven people fully, finally, and forever. Amen. Well, if you grasp these things, the first line of our next song will be one that you'll want to sing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And after we've sung, Bob Robinson's going to come and lead us in prayer.